Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. What a great event this is going to be, celebrating Wayne Kostenbaum. Uh, I can't believe how many people are here. This is super exciting. We've got Switzerland in the house. We've got Connecticut, Florida, Idaho, uh, Delaware, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, uh, a lot of New York, a lot of Los Angeles, Montana, Chicago. I could go on and on, but this is great. We're really glad each, each and every one of you is here. So now that we've uh, we've introduced ourselves, we're going to bring on the main event uh, tonight. This is just going to be a blast. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a short reading first. Uh, I'm going to introduce both of our guests, Wayne. Well, first I'll introduce Wayne. And then after he's done reading, I will bring in, um, then I'll be bringing in our other guest, Maggie. And then uh, they will be in a conversation for probably about 35 or 45 minutes. And then after the conversation, you guys will have the opportunity to ask Wayne or Maggie any questions you have. Uh, while you're listening to the presentation, you're welcome to ask questions right there in the chat box. And I'll make sure that they get into the queue on our uh, very, very cool, very cool uh, session here. I like this, this, uh, this whole crowd cast. I think this is going to be just great. So again, uh, welcome everybody. We're so glad you're here. Maggie forgot to mention that we're not taking any cash in the store. So if you do get the opportunity to come over, and we sure hope you do, uh, to browse if you're in LA, don't bring cash. We don't want that. Anyway, you guys, let's get started right away. Like I said, we're celebrating Wayne Kostenbaum and his new book, Figure It Out. Wayne is a poet and a critic and an artist, and his books include The Queen's Throat, Opera, Homosexuality and the Mystery of Desire, a National Books Critics Circle Award finalist. He is also, uh, let's see here, wrote Jackie Under My Skin, Interpreting an Icon, My 80s and Other Essays, Hotel Theory, The Pink Trance. There are so many books. It's so exciting. And we've got them all at Skylight Books. So if you need one of Wayne's books, please order from us. Uh, right now, Wayne is a distinguished professor of English at the CUNY Graduate Center, and his website is waynekostenbaum.com. Now, interviewing Wayne tonight and being in conversation, I'll just introduce her now, and then she can jump in when Wayne's done reading, is Maggie Nelson. Maggie is the author of nine books of poetry and prose, including the National Book Critics Circle Award-winning The Argonauts. She also wrote The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, The Red Parts, also amazing. And then, get this, you guys, Maggie won a fellowship 
she was awarded a MacArthur, a MacArthur Genius Fellowship as well as other ones. And she's just stunning. She lives in Los Angeles. So right now, you guys, I'm going to let those guys take over. And please, wherever you are in the country or in the entire world, please put your hands together for Wayne Kostenbaum. I hear it. I hear it. I think that's a man. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. Okay, wow. Okay, wow. Here, I hear my voice. I hear my voice. Okay, it'll just take a second, you guys. We're getting a little feedback, as you can all hear. It'll just take a second. I think Maggie might, Maddie might have a bad connection, but it's all going to um, work out. It's Wayne. You, I think you have the uh, the video open in two tabs, maybe on your browser. I'm always at fault. That's no. Yeah. But that's great. I love the position of being always at fault. So now I can really begin. Uh, now, hang on. I don't see your picture. Oh, let's see. No, Wayne, you're good. You're good. You see it. I can see it. Okay. Now, thanks to the audience for for hanging in here right now. We're you know we're rolling with it. Wayne, I can see you. You you can I can I hear see. you. I think this all looks good. Okay, I'm gonna start. Maggie, nod. Maggie, I can nod. Okay, great. I'm gonna read a, a two page essay, really two and a half pages, called Rauschenberg's Squeegee about the artist Robert Rauschenberg, and it's a it's a a reading of a photograph of him in the in the early '60s doing something. Rauschenberg squeegee. In the studio, Robert Rauschenberg rolls his shirt sleeves above the biceps. Elbow dimples and chunky arms add up to charm, success, the luxury of being beheld. Bryce Marden, assisting today, beholds him. So does Mel Bachner, the unseen photographer. Twice beheld, Rauschenberg refuses to smile. Images emerging from his squeegee catch the 1968 sunlight and send it into convulsions that won't end tyranny. And yet Rauschenberg intends to end tyranny by spreading imagery far in concentric circles away from his unified self and toward a multi-souled conglomerate of flutterings that constitute the enlarged Bob, the decentered artist, the prolific repeater. Rauschenberg's shoes, black leather, veer toward finance, respectability. His pants, are they jeans or mere slacks, govern the atmosphere by refusing to negate the atmosphere. Pants stay above the fray by being rolled up to expose the Rauschenberg ankles clad in dress socks. His hair without frill or flaw affords a frame. His hair, like Johnny Cash's, takes a loose, soulful stand. 
Rauschenberg's hair will permit pugnaciousness for ceremony's sake, but would prefer to take a pacifist route by lying down a protester in the middle of the highway. I place my body of potential victims on the road of art history, the hair of Rauschenberg might say, if it had the will to confess. But his hair remains silent, creating a vacuum to be filled by the volubility of his flannel shirt, which, untucked, has the stalwart elan of a Paul Bunyan theme park memento purchased for a squalling boy who suffered motion sickness on the merry-go-round. Rauschenberg's flannel shirt proposes a neutral, forestry-oriented consolation. The artist, like Mount Rushmore, occupies a vast, lonely space. His studio is a chapel of the former St. Joseph's Union Mission of the Immaculate Virgin on Lafayette Street. Many virgins live on Lafayette. Rauschenberg is not among them. Capable of sexual acts we can't sketch here, he solves the mystery of the Immaculate Conception by conceiving his art with Marden's assistance. Marden, hidden like a bodhisattva in a corner, lest his beauty overstage the prima donnas, holds God's seed in a headband wrapped around his sweaty brow. The headband, which will appear a year later in Easy Rider, or will threaten to appear but then fail to show up, contains a tiny pouch. Sewn inside this pouch, a thimble-sized vial holds the blessed seed, which will trigger the conception of anything you wish to occur. The pressure of a squeegee on a screen is a sensation contained within my wish. A squeegee, when it rubs against the screen, exerts a steady, hard pressure whose ineffable physicality kills off any imagery that the silkscreen itself will depict. Rauschenberg's unwavering hands enjoy the squeegee's pressure. We pretend to be governed by images. We pretend that images seduce and construct us. Physical pressures, however, have a power surpassing the visual images. The squeegee dominates and subsumes any image it creates, even if the squeegee later vanishes from the scene of conception. Stained and nude, the squeegee will have no biographer. Rauschenberg doubtless loved this squeegee above all others, even if he gave it no proper obsequies. Okay, Coming Maggie, in. Maggie, that was lonely. That was lonely. <laughs> we were all here with you is the thing, you know. I was I, reading, I was reading along, so I, I assumed that I took my picture actually away. Everybody had gone and it was okay if I was alone and everybody <laughs> was wandering around in the desert for 40 days. 
No, well, this is a very good segue into the first thing I wanted to say, which is that, um, uh, well, hi to Wayne, and 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 also that, you know, my whole life since I first started reading you or knowing you, but also through COVID, especially, um, just thinking, just knowing that you exist makes me feel hopeful and able to go on, like literally every day. <laughs> just of you out there so not only are you not alone but just you know just so you know and i'm sure that's true for many people uh watching right now which is just to say that um you know you've been a north star for me for so long in your writing and i'm really excited about end living but this book figure it out which everybody should go push on the little uh green button and order it right now because the thing is um I mean, I love all of Wayne's books, but I just first, you know, I have a special, I will admit, I have a special place in my heart for the essay collections. Um, and this one is no different. And so I'm so thrilled to be doing this. And I'm so glad that you exist. And I'm so glad that we're talking during this weird time and you're totally not alone. <laughs> and so that's my introduction. Um, but um, I guess my first question for you, which has to do with this time and has to do a little bit with this idea of being alone or not alone is that one of my like one of my favorite things about how I feel about you is I envy you terrifically without it having any ugliness to my envy like it's just like a happiness and one of my envies is that I always think of you as um like an art animal or like a literary animal that's able to adapt to anything that the world is and so when you're doing slow looking or running around town and looking at art, like there's that. But then I imagine you during this time completely able to be painting or playing the piano or having completely a social solitary time as well. I don't know if any of that's true. So my first question though is just, um, because we spoke about this a little bit today, just any thinking about the social and antisocial or asocial that you've had during this time about art or otherwise, you know? No, well, Maggie, first of all, I'd like I double back to you and, and replicate and repeat. And say, we're, you and I are chrono chronologically in a very strange relation because um, I'm older and I would, you know, so it was first in the world, but then there's you and you define me in so many ways. And I've learned so much, honestly, from your work, as I hope you know, and I know you know, and I have told you many times, but that. Um, I mean, and I will, in, in, to tie it in with this, this, to tie this ode to Maggie into answering the question, it has something to do with the, maybe the way you fold together the, the, the generous and the alone or the, the solitary and the out there, um, that you are able, you know, as primary, as somebody who groomed yourself as a poet first to dwell in language and listen to it in a very private way, quickly moved on to call it larger projects or, or projects that, that seized the world and, and wrangled it. So I guess um, COVID, me, social, antisocial, as you know, and you, I've always been a big a proponent of the antisocial turn without actually ever being antisocial person. But like I, I subscribed early on in the, I think in the, 80s, I think, to the, the allure of the movement away from uh, all the sacred cows of cooperation, amelioration, goodness, even, um, and the, the, uh, transgression, call it the satanic, um, 
You know, fecal is a big word of praise in my book as it's masturbatory, but you know, unfettered play uh, with with the notion that that the world may be destroyed by the solitary player. And I've always been happy for that to be the case, maybe because I thought the world would never be destroyed, which is not true as a child of the Hiroshima era and the Holocaust. I, of course, understood that the world was always already destroyed. But I guess I just want to say that, A, I've not been a model COVID producer or thinker or beer. Um, and I guess I've felt, because partly because of everything in the world right now and the sense of hope and despair and change, tectonic change and everything. I felt fiercely social while being um, the pause button having been hit on my actual being and interruptions. I, but, you know, I don't know, you would say the interiority has lost some of its savor. Right. <laughs> I'm not basking in some kind of like Artaud jouissance. <laughs> I'm really not. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, interiority is defined by the exterior option, right? So it's a little bit, yeah. But I also have the feeling, I mean, I've always wanted school to be canceled. I've always wanted structures to crumble. I've always been happy, right? you know, when things get downgraded, canceled, um, uh, obliterated, tear down the statues. I've always been very happy. It makes a cleaner horizon for consciousness. Right. Right. Well, what do you think about, I mean, part of my imagining you is like, not that, not in like a, what did you call it? Like an Artaud jouissance. We're not necessarily like that, but I do imagine, for example, I mean, you're reading about Rauschenberg in so many of these essays and other places, you know, I mean, you introduced me to TJ Clark's The Sight of Death about kind of slow looking. And I think about you as somebody who, um, you know, has taught me about going to art or looking at art. It doesn't have to be art. It can be a face. It can be anything. Like, I mean, as, as you as you write about, you know, these studies and attention. Um, but, you know, you never have opposed that kind of study of attention to um, doing, you know, to, to new mediums like Instagram or whatever, you know, whatever. You've done all this amazing work in performativity online. And and it doesn't seem like, you know, the 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 rhythm of your attention seems able to find um, home anywhere, you know? And I wonder if you, but these days with COVID and stuff, everyone is, I don't know, there's a lot of freaking out about looking at art and what, you know, as if this six months to two year or whatever, it's gonna be pause, will kind of change the idea of looking forever. And I wonder if you have thoughts about looking or, you know, the or, you know, and all this, yeah, I don't know. I guess um, a, a very old-fashioned response, in a yeah. way, would be that I don't, I don't trust my archive to have been a thorough enough one for me to rest on the laurels of my looking and say I've done looking. Right. Um, so I guess in a very concrete way, in terms of film, the last year for me has been a kind of self-education project with the help of my students at CUNY in a couple of seminars I've been teaching in familiarizing myself with the tradition of. Um, inde independent art, um, poet filmmaking. And you and I have talked about Peggy Awesh, for example. Yeah. And so I kind of think, just as a general rule, until I've seen all the films of Peggy Awesh, right. I'm not going to stop looking. Right. And, yeah. Great. and Peggy, hopefully, will never stop making them. So, 
And then, or Barbara Hammer, you know, I mean, Barbara Hammer is gone to her reward, but I haven't seen everything by Barbara Hammer. I just saw a film somewhat recently where she's filming people in, um, uh, who are like attending some events with her. She goes online. I mean, she people are lined up at theaters to hear her speak in, uh, before her movies. And she makes a film of the people going to her movies. And, um, I mean, who knew that such a thing exists? That's a kind of looking too, that the artist looking at the audience. I guess like the, just say like Peggy Awish and Barbara Hammer as models for um, under some, I mean, there are plenty recognized too, but yeah. just, yeah. So I guess I'm saying Maggie, um, until I've uh, really scrutinized the past, the present and, and the future, I'm, I'm, I, I just think no time to pause. No time to pause. Fantastic. All right. My next question for you, Wayne, is a, is a strange one, but it's related, in fact, to seeing people or not seeing people <laughs> this time, which is what do you think about like COVID fashion? And I don't mean that by like what your mask should say. What I mean is like um, I'm, I've been just kind of fascinated with like the urge or not the urge to wear anything when one's not witnessed <laughs> by other people. And I thought you would have interesting thoughts on the matter. I personally have ordered like a whole new, like a, like Obi-Wan Kenobi set of like domestic wear, <laughs> but like nobody sees it except for now you 333 people. But like, I'm very fascinated with like what people are, especially you, how you're getting dressed every day. It's COVID fashion, okay? This <laughs> is like COVID fashion. It's very, oh yeah, shorts. Pink shorts, tank top. You ever seen me in a tank top? No. I really, I really thought about coming to this event with just the tank top and I did 75 push-ups, but that wasn't <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm blushing for you, but it's not for it's not on your behalf. It's just because I'm so excited. <laughs> no, I just thought, so A, COVID fashion is that like is this. And right. this whole thing. See, like just like air and um <laughs> and I'm barefoot. I hate right. being barefoot. I am I won't show you my feet, but I am barefoot. Right. But I think that and I, but I also, I think that you're yellow. I noticed it this afternoon and I would, it's yellow. It's so saturated. I don't yeah. know if that's connected to COVID. Cheap, I think is the issue. Because another thing about COVID fashion is like, I don't think I should buy anything more than like $15 since no one else is going to see it. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay. Okay, okay so that was very fruitful. Um, and this is also related because I just wanted to, I just want to make sure that you guys, I mean, I'm sure you all know how great Wayne's writing is, but I just wanted to read a couple of things. Um, and this is related to being excited or not excited about what you wear, but in this essay, my new glasses. So Wayne writes, don't get too excited about your glasses. We may need to kill you. Who is scolding me? Some schoolyard bully? A warden who wants to scapegoat me for disseminating what I once called fag ideation. I spread fag ideation around like a diptych room spray to conceal the head farts, as Antonin Artaud put it, that normative logic imposes on the trippy dream world of enlarged thought. So I just wanted to throw that out there for a few reasons. One, I just noticed in what you just read about Rauschenberg that enlarged also plays an appearance in that essay as a word, which is very interesting to me, but also just um, uh, just this, you know, this uh, 
it recurs kind of throughout this voice, the schoolyard bully telling you like, you know, don't get too excited about your glasses. And, and you know, we both worship at the altar of Eve Sedgwick, who you have an essay in here about. And, and I always, you know, Eve and you and other people, you know, made this kind of dyad of, um, you know, excitement and shame, very obvious to many of us, but, you know, which seems obviously on display here. So you're so, you know, this whole book and your whole writing life is all about excitement about things or being spellbound or, and then, you know, then there's this, uh, and then there's this phantom voice. And I just wondered if you wanted to say anything about that and if fag ideation or the trippy dream world of enlarged thought had changed this concepts for you over time. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking today very much of that. Like, this is kind of a, well, first, okay, first I will say about enlargement. Right away when you, a a phrase in my first book of essays, Cleavage, I have an essay that quotes something Keats said. I think it was Keats, it might have been Rilke, about nostrils wide open to everything. Nostrils are not a lovely part of the body. Really. But, so I won't like I won't make that nostril should remain as closed as possible. Nonetheless, the notion of like drinking in promiscuously the sensations of the world has always been attractive to me, and not like in an aesthetic movement way of like gently connoisseur like tasting them, but ov- overdosing on them in big gulps. And the, so I was thinking today about trans being and trans lives and wondering, for example, if had I been in a different era, perhaps that that certain trans narratives would have fit me more or felt more urgent than they did. Because I was just, so I guess in terms of excitement and shame, I talk a lot about my childhood, not because I think I was unusually scapegoated or had an unusually thwarted existence, but I think because they were, it was, Childhood for me was the paradigm of the person spraying fag ideation all over and it not landing on surfaces, right? So, you know, like in third grade, I think it was in third grade, I signed my papers, Mary Poppins. (laughs) What else? What the fuck else was I going to sign my papers? Mary Poppins, take notice. And I spent most recesses reading encyclopedias in the library, mostly about movies. Reading, I got married on the schoolyard to a girl. Um, I, I don't know. So, like, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is, in terms of enlargement, fag ideation, excitement, shame, um, my life has always been structured by a sense of um, asymptotic reaching toward what I feel within me and around me if I'm only exuberant enough to grab it. Um, and I feel checked in that by my own lassitude, limitations, um, failure to persevere, and the schoolyard bully. And the schoolyard bullies have not gone away, mm-hmm. to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're really much fiercer than schoolyard bullies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, should, I would just say, I feel lucky to have been bullied mm-hmm. to that extent, mm-hmm. to the extent I was bullied even if only gently, because it gave me an early education in the reality of the need for resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I don't know if um, the voice of obligation or of the writer's task or all the, this kind of other discourse in this book is the voice of the bully per se, but I was really taken with the essay, No More Tasks in here. And it's kind of lengthy discussion about, um, well, 
in a different essay, uh, Odd Secrets of the Line, which is kind of a lot about resisting coherent argument, you know, and I was, okay, well, so I'll just start with the writer's obligation thing. I mean, what's so interesting about this essay, and I think of this as a kind of hallmark sometimes of your writing, not all the time, but where you'll very much say no more tasks, you know, and endorse that point of view while, while the sentences start off, the writer's obligation is to X, the writer's obligation is to that. So you're kind of, um, um, you know, which I think of a lot because I think in my own writing life, I think about this paradox that you once told me where you were like, you have to say the, you have to say um, indefensible things and then you can spend the whole rest of your essay like blurring them, but you have to, and I, and I know that kind of, sense of the blur and then the strong statement. But I just wonder, you know, I mean, do you feel like the sense of obligation and tasks, which is, you know, it's it, from kind of all quarters right now about to the writer or the artist is a kind of bullying um, or yeah, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I'm thinking of your writing and something I've always admired in it, which has to do with its racing quality, the sense that it's, um, racing toward the next idea uh, that, that it that it is filled with zeal to articulate the thing that you're sensing as the sentence is unfolding and i would just i would say a difference perhaps between the way we manage our excitement and our zeal has bearing on on, on what you're saying is that i i always i a big a, something that i feel as a task and an obligation that i sense in your writing you don't is that language itself for me is the task and, and not that I don't, can't write fluidly and quickly, and, um, but that, that I often feel in this kind of paradoxical way, like a Beckett or like one of Beckett's characters, a person of no voice, a person, a person of halting, stuttering speech who can't go on. And that is in a way the feeling when I write, and it's so overwhelming when I write that I often, articulate it within the writing itself. And I feel that in your writing, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I've often said this to you, that you, the writing is, uh, it's as if the writing, it's language itself doesn't offer an impediment. Contradiction offers an impediment that you may have said one thing or felt one thing, and then you want to say or feel something else. But language as a task, language is not a bully for you. Language is what it means is that my language is less interesting than yours because in the stained glass Windex dyad about writers that you kind of rehearse at the end of this book via vis-a-vis -vis early workshop in Baltimore with John Bart, like where he said you have to decide if you're a writer who's into the stained glass version or the Windex version. And you know, I mean I I um you know I I you say you're you say that you're always faithful to the stained glass, you know, and I, I don't want to be faithful to the Windex. I just like, I can't, like, I can't, like, I want to be showy and I don't know how, I just don't even know where to go. I don't even know where to shop to find showy. Like, I just don't even know where to go. You know what I mean? But that just means, that just means, that, that just means though that, but when I read your writing, I remember, I know that it's in syntax and it's in vocabulary and it's in rhythm and it's in sentence structure. It's in a million things, you know, that I forget about when I write, you know. You know, and I'm not, you know, really darling, this is what I want to say that you are, you are stained glass. It's a different kind of stained glass. It's not a stained glass that is in a way of resistance, but the stained glass is the arabesque and dance of your thought and the way that it does not 
considers syntax a problem. It finds the syntax it needs and it, it moves into that and it moves into interesting odd idioms that it picks up here or there and it speeds into those in a way that it's like, I mean, Keith Herring isn't really exactly it by any means, but it has to do with an all over strategy. I think that isn't maybe stained glass, but that has to do with lines that go in different directions and create a sense of uh, thick space around the thinking and feeling. It's not, a, in a way, your tempo is less comma ridden than mine. I use a lot of commas. I use a lot of multisyllabic words. And there, there's a lot of poetry-like enjambment effects that stop the movement. And sometimes I'm very, but you, I think, um, you, you move here and there. And it's like really like what Kandinsky figured out about um, lines shooting in different ways into space. It is. I it just, it's not stained glass. It's not stained glass. It's, um, it's a kaleidoscope. All right. Well, okay. Putting that aside, but I do want to say about sentence structure that when I do think about you and when I miss you, I do think about, this is a sentence I pulled off of page nine for those of you following, but you're talking about your glasses and you, and you, and you've bought them. You bought a, a I don't know if they're the glasses you're wearing because I'm no, an, an no. idiot. But like, so it's what, the, it's the son of the designer that you wanted to buy the glasses of, or the grandson or something. Yeah, it's the son, Jim, Jeremy Tarion, and I wanted um, whatever his name is, Alan Meekley. So this is just to note why it says air, H-E-I-R. So the sentence reads, air vibe, obedient patriarchal descent vibe, suffuses my new frames. But when I miss you, I always think about introductory, you know, a positive clauses <laughs> and with a comma. And I try and do it in my writing. Like I try and just reverse the sentence around and flip something to come first because it's like, like the way you do it, it always feels like you're inviting the reader into like a conspiracy. Um, but then like, it doesn't suit me. <laughs> we have, I, I would say it's like ambivalence might not be the right word, but of course we both are like everybody interesting, I think. We're creatures of ambivalence. I mean, we're everything is ambivalent and we don't know which flavor and we don't know whether it's um, excitement or shame. I mean, we don't know even where, how many the bullies are proliferating. But I think that you, my sense, of it, what's exciting about, one of the things that's exciting about your writing is the way you stage that ambivalence in the syntax and in the movement. And that you don't need to, I think, what I do with maybe the moving phrases over there is that the lump of language that I come up with when I draft needs to be really edited in a way, in a cinematic way almost, and bits of it need to be shoved in different places. And there's often just literally a lot, it's like cleaning up a room after a cyclone hit it. And I have to move things in places and there's sometimes isn't any other place to move them. And I also, I like turgidity. And I like in that like Artaud, Gertrude Stein way, I like language that refers to itself not to be fancy, but to be physical. And I like language that makes um, a palpable affair of its physicality. And I think that's what, what I wanted to read, the squeegee thing. And I, yeah. is to like, to put right at the center, there are, Imagery is one thing, and this is somewhat of a book about art, and we both talk about art a lot, but it's the physicality that underlies it. And languages, the squeegee-like tenacity of language interests me a lot. 
I mean, it reminds me. That, so in the essay about the line where you're talking about being accused of avoiding coherent argument, but you say um, random details restore my birthright optimism while strict argument fastens me to an electric chair, which is so great. And, <laughs> I, and, and I feel like it's, um, but what I also love and when you're kind of claiming mystification, because I always think about this with you, we're like, as a teacher, you know, like you, like often if I want to just go full throttle into mystification, I'll just teach texts that are just mystified, just mystified texts. But I feel like, you know, you've taught the Arcades Project and Benjamin and things, and you've told me about like the kind of, not terror, but you know, uh, task of having like really hardcore Marxists in class or something when you're trying to like pull out the kind of more mystified qualities of, and I, but you go right into it. I mean, you'll, you'll go right into it and just, and, 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 and allow so many different thinkers or writers to be um, apprehended on terms that are not always the terms that other people are apprehending them on. You know? I feel like I read in some interview of you or of, some in, in part of our intertext out there in the media, I heard you said something about like how I told you to not get um, bogged down with the big boys or something. Heavyweights, yeah. yeah. Don't get bogged down with the heavyweights. And I think that we both, in a way, we started out very young doing the thing that we were doing. And we, we knew very early in our 20s, in a sense, the kind of thing we wanted to be doing. And I think as a result of that, even though I, I think we're both very um, people pleaser types in our own different ways, we try to be, we try to be social in that way. Um, well, a, a risk that I've taken and I feel that you've taken too is to say, well, like I'm going to teach the arcades project or I'm going to, I'm going to treat it as like my property. Right. Um, right. I, you know, I like, I think in my, Maggie, in my dissertation, the first chapter is about Freud. Right. And like, I would never actually get away with that had I been as bullied and policed as I act like I've been in my life. Uh -huh. I got away with murder. I got to do, you know, in some sense, like, like yeah. just like, I want to write about Freud. Well, you're in an English department. Do you know German? Have you looked at the German? Have you read Lacan? Have you read anybody? <laughs> Have you read Anna Feldman? Have you, do you know anything? No, right. I thought Anna, oh, anus, this is so right. cool. <laughs> right. And you're so, right. Yeah. And so I think that that's like the. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, another thing I want to ask about in this book, which is just um, so. I don't know if it's the same line essay or not. Let me just look really quickly. Um, yeah, it's non secrets of the line. So you're talking about formalism, and you say at one point, I've always, I'm always boxing myself into the same corner, this formalism versus ethics corner. I wonder if I'm the only person stuck in this cul-de-sac. I mean, I was like, no, 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 hey, here I am. Um, but I was really, it wasn't just that though, because the formalism versus ethics thing is a little, you know, can be can get stale. But the thing that you postulate also the, about formalism in that essay as you say i need to come to a if you were going to make an argument you say i would need to come to a decision about the relationship of trauma to formalism which somehow was something i'd never heard anybody say or think about before i thought it was great well thank yeah. you it's really but it's, it's kind of i mean i think it's it's crystal it's clear to me in that first of all that that um well i'm thinking of that i refer to it often i think that article in in the New Yorkers a really long time ago about Jeannie, um, a, a, a profoundly disabled 
young girl who was locked away from language or really any human contact for the first years of her life, a kind of wild child. And she fixated on the one object that she could bond with in her room of, of, of real captivity, it's torture, um, was a yellow, was a plastic raincoat. And it was the raincoat that, uh, and, and you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Trump, to traumatize people to say that's formalism. That, or that that not that she thought oh I'm gonna oh yeah you know I'm gonna do an, I'm gonna make an abstract artwork out of my confinement it's just that the, the under a, a very simple negotiation with unbearable reality was made there where love would be frozen under the sign of either plastic raincoat object hanging um, and it's those kinds of um, stultifications or ossifications of the of the felt world that happen into all of us when we're kind of cradled by impossible circumstances that give us a formalist register for thinking it's super interesting and i mean we were talking earlier today i don't know how to like clearly we're not living through right now you know i'm not making any you know, equivalences between now and other, you know, historical times and wars. But we were talking earlier today about, um, yeah, just about uh, duration and not knowing and art made under times when, um, uh, you know, the idea of when and if books come out, people go see art, you know, uh, we that we see each other again <laughs> not, not like this all off the table and we were talking about or i was talking about how so much of human history or and human present involves not knowing when things end but we're very you know but we're but we're experiencing the not knowing of covid as if it's like can you believe it no one's gonna tell us when this historical event you know what its script is you know like we're just we can be kind of shocked to be living in it and i just but it made me think about that comment about the relationship of trauma to formalism. And I mean, I guess I'm still waiting to get my formalist, you know, mojo on during, <laughs> during this time. Okay, the formalist mojo for now might have something to do with the next, like next, nextness, subsequentness, not seriality, but because the, the thing that most haunts me about temporality right now is that we're, if we're thinking about the end of COVID or even about the end of, of um, even like prison abolition, the end of prison, but imagining that there is that there is a reign of terror of some kind and that there will be an end to it. What about the next reign of terror? And so if COVID, it's like I just read in the Times today about like bubonic plague. I don't even, I know. <laughs> okay, so, and I kind of always felt, because first there was like the atom bomb. Right. And then there, I mean, there, there have been, AIDS, there this successive right. things, that, and I know the experience of like anyone in wartime, when this is over, everything will be all right. And it is so clear that this is a dress rehearsal. And we all know, and we know, you know, you in LA know with the the fires and all that, that there is this, it, it's um the eschatological drift of everything. So I guess the formalist thing would be how to dwell within a thing in a time that you're waiting eagerly for the end of when you know that that will be that there is a, it's a trilogy of terror there will be <laughs> you know? right. so what's well, the right and, 
Are they on top of each other? Are they next to each other? Does one cause the other? Yeah. Can you reverse, you know, those kinds of relations which are formalist. Right. That is true. Okay, you're right. That is the, okay, that is the formalist mojo. <laughs> so I'm making a note of this. Okay. Although I fear that I know that I'm kind of a, you know, I know you're all out there still and we're going to get to you. So I just have one more question. Actually, it's not even a question. I just wanted to read something because I love it so much. And this is from, um, and then we'll move to taking some questions. But I just, this is from your essay about Eve Sedgwick, writing the escalator with Eve. And you say, and this is maybe related to temporality, but you say at a certain point, you say, I cannot forgive 2018 for not taking in gaily a style of critical gaming as amply showy as Eve. Don't polarize, I tell myself, following Eve's example. Don't make a binary of 1993 and 2018 and then act brutalized by a paradigm you've coined. Um, I thought that was so brilliant. I mean, in part just because part of the temporality of what you're thinking is this endless idea of like, this was then and this is now. And, and, and we all know, I mean, I was thinking about talking to you today and some of you watching may know that, you know, I met Wayne in, in, when I went to graduate school and we did our work together in the 9-11 era, you know, <laughs> and, which is very much on my mind now. Um, so what I was thinking about, but I was also thinking about 1993 and 2018. And anyway, I was just thinking about the don't polarize. And I was also thinking about the not being able also to forgive your time for not allowing for the showy, which is kind of related to um, what we were talking about before about uh, tasks and obligation. I don't know. This is not a question. I just no, but it's to, yeah. kind of like why I'm in a, in a way a curator, librarian, archivist, critic type is that I do rarely forgive the present for not remembering the urgencies of 1993 or 1893. It's not like I'm so like a medievalist or anything, but the, the, um, and it's like the old problem, why I am, why I am not nostalgic is it's more, I am into rebuking the present, including my present for not knowing about Peggy Awesh's philosophy in the bedroom made like in 1990. You know, that kind of thing. Like, it's there's a lot to rebuke ourselves for not understanding that already happened and was yeah. blessed for. So yeah. I guess, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. It's, not, it's not masterpieces of the past I'm talking about. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, so whatever, like with, with um, and it, I think it would be with Eve about, like, Eve needing to defend why she's reading Proust and Henry James. And hurt it would certainly not be because she thought they were just great, though they were and are. But it was because they described oscillations of affect that needed to be explored right now, having to do with how to bring your kids up gay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So amazing. All right, I'm writing down all kinds of things. Can I say one more thing, Maggie? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and then we'll bring maybe Christine for some questions. Okay. I remember somebody asking me, like a, a journalist or something, right after 9-11, like, what are you listening or reading to right now? And I remember saying Ruth Crawford Seeger, a composer I didn't really know anything about, and, and that I'm playing Ruth Crawford Seeger's um, eight, A Study in Mixed Accents at the piano. It was composed like in the early 30s. And it, the, the fact that I hadn't heard of it, but that it had been composed by this for kind of forgotten, but now in, in some ways lionized composer, like reinserting myself in a, a story that 
that never, I don't know, that never found its audience. That's yeah, yeah. kind of, I, and I remember, I was, also, I will say, Maggie, I've, I've told you, I remember walking to school the day after 9-11, or two days after, and it was our minor moderns class. Oh, God, amazing. Reading. And I still remember your bright face there as part of his <laughs> meaning. It, what it meant to me was historical continuity over the interruption of the right. event. Right, yeah, I felt that too. And I remember it really well. And yeah. it's so interesting because that was the event and this is so different in terms of time. Um, but really it's just a different, you know, yeah, it's just like getting to know, you know, the um, the oscillation of affect of anxiety. <laughs> yeah. My best friend. Yes, exactly. All right, you guys. Um, well, maybe by Christine and we'll do some questions. And then also like an idiot, it looks like my cord, I have to go get a cord. So I'm gonna like go do that <laughs> while you guys start here in a minute. But okay, but Christine, are you coming back? I sure am, I'm here right now. Can You can hear me, right? Yes, totally. Awesome, okay, Wayne, we've got about eight or nine questions lined up for you, so this is great. Uh, the first question for you is, how are you each negotiating the private and creativity now with so few public releases? Hmm. Well, I mean, I will say that it's very, that I have had this book published, figure it out at the beginning of May, and I've had, it's a sort of a shallow answer, but I've had events like this that are very nice and people have yeah. read book, maybe more than have read books of mine for a while. So in a funny way, and many, some of these essays I wrote um, in the early 2000s, you know, so that there's been a lot of solitary making that went into this book. And the feeling now, despite the interruptions of the present is that I, I, I have the comfort of actually, you know, there are all these people, there are 335 people there. That's more, that's more reciprocity than I've, I'm accustomed to. Yeah, it really is exciting. Uh, Maggie, I'll ask you the same question. Someone asked how each of you guys are negotiating the private and creativity now with so few public releases. Wow, I wish I <clears throat> had had the benefit of hearing what Wayne just said, but I did hear him say about the 334. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm finishing a book right now and uh, I'm not, I was not in any phase of public living. So um, uh, none of that's changed. The only thing that changed is just, um, you know, lack of childcare and no time to have solitary <laughs> labor. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, so, but, but, but I, but I, I get up now very early. I was telling Wayne, I get up now at 445 or five and, and right until people wake up, so. That's really smart. What a good way to use your time. Right, well, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Here comes another question for you, Wayne. Here it comes. I serendipitously watched, watched Hanky's The Piano Teacher last night and read your essay, Game of Pearls, this morning. I was delighted by your reference to Isabel Hubbard in Story of Women in Beauty Parlor at Hotel Dada. But I'm wondering if you considered the piano teacher, Hankies or Jelenix, while writing Game of Pearls. Is the nexus between piano playing and sadomasochist ideation and impulse merely a pat literary invention, or is there something more? Boy, good question, Paul. That's, I could say a lot about piano teachers, about classical music and sadism. We could spend a lot of time here talking about it, but I had not seen, I don't think that uh, the piano teacher, the film had come out when I wrote the essay Game of Pearls. 
And um, yeah, first of all, shout out to Isabel Huppert, who um, pretty much invents my sense of what it means to have a body right now on stage or just even off stage, how to be cruel, how to be beautiful how to do most things. I really can't get enough of her, but I don't, I don't think piano teachers are necessarily sadistic. They're just trying to help. But I do think that being told how to move or being told, teaching is really an impossible thing. Teaching is really impossible. And I think there's been a lot of um, work and thinking and feeling and acting about how to bring out in other people and young people their best instincts or even their worst instincts, how to just, how to let people play is really hard. Maggie, would you like to respond to that? You did? No. Can you guys hear me? Uh, yes, we can. Okay. I don't think I have anything to add about the piano is Wayne's territory. But play well, is yours, and you have, yeah, play is yours, too. And you have a son, of course, you just, you were saying. I, that I do. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say, it's not really the question, but just what Wayne was just saying about teaching people to do anything, I think is, um, uh, I just think it's something I think about all the time, um, especially because, uh, I don't know, as a parent, you can, I, I think I started off having this, oversized belief in osmosis <laughs> like if you just behaved a certain way or just had a lot of books on the shelves and i and, and i don't i don't think that's quite true <laughs> and yet what wayne's describing about telling people how to be um is not right either so it's um uh i mean i think one can i mean part of what's so beautiful to me about wayne having been a teacher of mine is that and Eve as well, and other things is you know I, I've thought a lot about people who've taught me, and I love reading in Wayne's book the essay on John Barth or anyone who teaches, because I think that in some ways retrospecting about how you were taught or what you what you got out of how you were taught tells us more about teaching than like the moment of teaching. You know, there's very little that you can learn in in the the temporal present about. Uh, what kind of knowledge is being imparted. But there's a lot you can learn by, you know, living many years and thinking about it. And a lot of things that one learns as a student um, are only, this is kind of obvious, are only tangentially related to the teacher or certainly to the intention of the teacher. It's yes. like, um, you know, like my very first writing teacher in college, Cynthia Rich, it was the way, I think it was really the way she said, I think on the first day, something about the difference between entertainment and literature, which you could say is like an old folky thing to say, but not the way she said it. The way she said, entered, there's like entertainment and there's literature. And literature seemed like the sinful coast where we would want to live. Well, that's like, uh, I mean, I, went, I met Wayne in part because I went to see him and he told me to look at when I was trying to decide about going to grad school, what people were wearing at the different grad schools I was looking at. And I went to Berkeley that week. I, look, I grew up in the Bay Area, so no one could get down on me for this. But, you know, I went to Sproul Plaza and I sat there and I looked at everybody like playing hacky sack. I grew up there, right? And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do the hacky sack and the shorts and everything. I just couldn't do it. 
And then I went back to CUNY and I was like, I can do this, you know, but it, you know, it was like, why, but, and, and it was like that question and that, uh, that was, it led to everything good. One more thing I'll say is that that, you could say that's being a bad teacher thing, a thing like that. So maybe there's another thing about when, when you're really too young to be trusted as a teacher, right. I <laughs> you should have been asking a more mature person. Wait, what you didn't know is I went to Berkeley and I, I don't know why I'm telling you this now on this live podcast, but I met Tom Gunn, but he's no longer with us. So I can tell this story. So I met Tom Gunn in his office, poet. And I said, you know, what, where do you think I should go to school? And he said, well, you should come here for the weather. And I said, I grew up here. And he said, well, then go to New York for the culture. And I said, okay, great. So it was, that was, he was very old then, but he was, he was also telling truths. You went to the right people. Good. Yeah. That's funny. Okay, here comes another question. Wayne, your writing has such propulsive energy and joy throughout. How do you revise toward that? How do you keep revision from flattening your early drafts? Or do you amp it up even more in revision? Simple answer. I've been talking too much. Is amp it? I amp it up. Mm. I take it, um, I cut a lot. I rearrange, as I've said, and I, I, I tend to go. I tend to exaggerate ev everything. So, like elect electric chair and whatever Maggie quoted. That's overkill, and it's. You could even say it's blasphemous, or it's none of my business to make a metaphor of the electric chair. But I do that kind of thing all the time. I love, uh, you know, anesthetize, kill off. Um, I, I, you know, and I, and I, these days I write a lot with even more and more and more with the dictionary. And most times I just don't like the words I'm using and I look up the word and I, and I just like find other words. And I, um, I like, I, I, um, I, I try, I try to, I don't know. Yeah. There's something Keats said. This is also in the curmudgeon category about like load every rift with ore or whatever, which is exactly what, I don't want to ever be a person who quotes that, but I am a person who quotes it and quotes it wrongly. <laughs> I try to load every rift with ore. O R E. Yes, I understand ore is very heavy. That's probably true. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's another question. Wayne, your work is so funny, and hearing you read without the ability to hear others react feels like watching an old sitcom with no laugh track. Does reading, performing, talking in this medium alter the experience of presenting your work? And what is the role of jokes in your work? In this medium, you meaning like in the Zoom medium or whatever, it reproduces primal autistic terror. I think, like I said, when I was reading this thing out loud, I assumed that actually that I had been disconnected and that I was actually just alone in my room reading. And that would have been okay too, but... Um, what was the question? It was, I, f I actually now forgot the question. Well, the question is basically just like, um, what is, um, does reading, performing, or talking in this medium, and I guess that of course means virtually, alter the experience of presenting your work? Do you, do you read differently in a bookstore or is this what you do? Right, I actually really love improvising. I love verbal improvising and I love, um, becoming someone more than and more than I am or other than I am by improvising. I like, I don't actually think verbally improvising isn't that different from writing is that you get to be more exuberant than you. I mean, when I'm not doing this, I'm a lump mm. or something like, aren't we all lumps when we're not 
effervescing and having an opportunity through um, the nervousness of the nervous making nature of interlocution to get jazzed up. Mm-hmm. Is a gr- I like being stimulated. Uh, you know, Wayne, I once heard an author say uh, that they that they really enjoy, of course, talking out loud and 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 in in front of a group of people, but that this is a whole different it's a whole different sensibility because you are live, but yet there's only a few people that can really uh, you know reach out and ask you these questions. So I think what they're wondering some is. Uh, you know, do, do, is it, will you continue to do this after COVID-19? I think that's the question. I'll do anything. I'll do oh, anything. that's awesome. <laughs> anything I'm asked to do. That's awesome. Here's a really funny question that someone asked. What are the possibilities of the escalator? Do they compare favorably or unfavorably to the elevator? Escalators are really, and the escalators that I'm, the escalator I rode with Eve Sedgwick was in the, probably in the Macy's in Union Square in San Francisco, where the <laughs> was at the time. And I, I think that it was, the thing about escalators in the department stores of my youth in the Bay Area would be, and maybe it's still the case is that you would travel from floor to floor with full visibility mm. around you of like women's purses, Boy Scout equipment, fishing gear i don't know fuel no. <laughs> like you would just like an escalator was this kind of um viewing chamber where you could where you could see the the all the progressions of human human wear i don't know i don't know maggie do you have thoughts on escalators <laughs> no i mean they seem better in covid 19 than elevators but um no i have no thoughts on the escalator but i do have one thing i wanted to ask you wayne which is totally unfair because we're doing audience questions but just i'm just gonna tyrannize which is that so there's one more quote i didn't read in my questions where you say writing is a terrible task it is also sometimes a pleasure but it is more often a task the arduousness of the task and the succulence of the pleasure are coiled together and when you were just talking about being a lump and then being kind of called into stimulation, which I, I relate to very much. Um, you know, I think of you vis-a-vis doing trance poetics or being or doing performative piano, free associative uh, performances. I think of you as somebody who finds a way to make writing not a terrible task. I increasingly feel like writing is a terrible task. I'm very bothered by this because I didn't used to think writing was a terrible task, but I feel like as I age, it becomes more and more terrible. But I feel like I think of you, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. Are you, do you care that it's terrible or do you find, or do you find that these methodologies about trance or, uh, uh, you know, co-musical, musicality performances, I mean, do, do you, or Instagram, I mean, do you find that those things uh, relieve the pressure of the terror of its of its uh, taskmaster status? Two things I want to say. One, yes. And the thing I'm really excited right now is learning how to edit on Premiere Pro to make more. To, I mean, like again, montage. Duh, it was invented in like the teens or the twenties, and I'm discovering again the magic of there's this bit of footage and you put it next to something else, 
and then you put it next to something else. You could put, and this is just basically like learning how to write a poem you, or writing an essay in the mode that we practice of kind of accretion and juxtaposition. You put one thing next to another and then next to another thing and all sorts of magical uh, arguments are created that you never could have crafted consciously. So yeah, I guess you could say I'm rediscovering argument and um, sequentiality through this, through Premiere Pro. And I want to say also to you, Maggie, if, if it feels like a task now, I really think entre nous, when you're done with this book, it won't feel like a task. You're going to find another, you're going to find a, a, something else that's going to be really not like a task. Not that, and this book also will not be to the reader a task. Do you enliven your body in the writing process? I mean, the taskness to me is that like, I don't feel like I was put on this earth to sit in a chair for eight hours at a screen. I just don't, I don't like doing it. You know, like I don't, I don't, it's not, I don't want my, I'm like kinetic. I like to move. I like to be, I, it just, it's, it's like, why is this the task, you know? But I feel like you've mobilized your body. Well, you know, this, this project, this poetic project that I'm, I've done these peripatetic sonnets that I wrote while walking around New York City and dictating them into my phone. And it's, and I also, right now, when I've been revising this book of fables, um, I, I walk, I walk, I pace a lot. I've let, I've and actually in this COVID period or whatever, I have learned not to take walks, to pace. And it being okay to simply walk in a perseverating circle around a yard or whatever, just to move. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'll, I return it to the group, okay. <laughs> yeah, Wayne, I wanna go back if we could for just one more moment, because I actually lost my train of thought before, but now I have it. Um, I've heard authors tell me that they wish that they had written their audiobooks or read their audiobooks aloud before they finished the actual um, writing of the book because when they say it aloud, and like you're talking about now being on a virtual in a virtual situation, when they say it aloud, they in fact are able to improvise and they add some things that they wish they had written down before they actually you know sealed the deal of the book. That's true, I'm sure, Maggie. I wonder if you would agree. Yeah, it is true that when you read something out loud, you discover things. But I, you know, I, I don't read everything of mine out loud before I publish it. But I generally read a lot of things I write out loud. And when I'm writing it, I am singing it to myself in some way. And I'm making, even just with my knee, making a kind of ballet. I, but I also, I read things out loud a lot. Okay, here's a simple question. Wayne, how do you make your eggs? Um, my boyfriend makes them for me most. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Maggie, how do you make your egg? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Actually, man, it's so boring. I mean, I prefer a poached egg, but I don't want to clean the pan, so scrambled. Yeah, scrambled is safe. I don't. I will say about eggs. I used to like when I was a kid. I had a lot of soft-boiled eggs, particularly when I was sick. I now I'm a little nervous about egg egg yolk, just like raw egg yolk. I feel less and less I want to include in the inner circle of my body. <laughs> here's a great here's a great question for both of you. How do you guys write about restlessness, borderlessness, resistance, and rebellion? Maggie, I'm gonna, you're gonna you're gonna answer that one first. Oh, give me a break! No, really. <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna go to the 
question box to see the words restlessness, borderlessness, resistance, and rebellion. You know, <clears throat> I think for me, um, and this is really the hard task, if you, especially if you're writing critical prose, I think, is that I don't think you can, I mean, you can write about those things, but you have to find a way for the writing to embody or be those things. So it, you know, all the, I mean, Wayne was positively valencing turgidity earlier, so I'm not gonna get down on the turgid, but I was about to use that word. But, you know, to me, <clears throat> you know, boring writing about rebellion or restlessness, even if it values it, um, is not going to do, uh, you know, it's not gonna do the work in the wor world that I want it to do. So um, I think trying not to write about, I mean, trying to make sure, and this isn't like what Wayne was, like when we were talking about before about, it's not necessarily as simple as like, oh, my sentences are alive or, oh, I've used great words. It's more like, um, maybe it's more related to what we were just talking about, which is like, if I'm reading it aloud to myself, if I'm bored by it, then it's not good enough, you know? So that's how I feel. Yeah, make it hurt more, make it more embarrassing, um, make it more, more, more. What I wanted to say though about turgidity, I like the word turgidity, but in fact, turgidity is not pleasant. I like, I prefer engorged, which I get from in Sontag's great paragraph about Elizabeth Hardwick, where she talks, I think, about how you've got to, to up the ante of sensation. You've got to make the adjectives more engorged. Or she says, find more engorged ways of knowing. It may be a little inappropriately phallic, but not really. It's not just phallic. Lots um, of things get engorged. Yeah, lots of things get engorged. So I would say I like engorged writing, not turgid writing. Right, right. Have you ever heard the uh, somebody will describe a raindrop as pregnant? Have you heard that term? I want to use the word pregnant a lot as an adjective, but it is. It's. I try to wean myself. <laughs> uh, here's a great question. I was also thinking about Wayne because I'm looking at the art behind you. Can you talk a little about how your visual art making affects your writing and vice versa? Yes, simply a simple answer would be that um, I have by becoming a, a visual artist, I slow down and look for the events and um, moods that are surrounding the thing I'm focusing on. And so that in and it may be in terms of writing that if I think I'm talking about a scene or if I'm focused, if my consciousness is focused toward here, I am aware that, well, that's one part of the painting, but there are other areas over there. And if I can let myself look, um, literally just wander outside the frame without losing the frame. So I would say um, relations of contiguity and of a, a blurred borders the blurred borders of the described thing that open onto other historical scenes and other sensual possibilities. Call it, it's a kind of synesthesia. Um, like for example, I'm looking at the word right here, paper clips, and it's um, right by Allen Ginsberg's the fall of America or whatever. And like, it, it's, it would, I don't, I can't go too profound there. I can't actually say anything, but it would be like letting, letting the, letting either paper clips or the fall of America 
letting the atmosphere around them lead me to the thing that I really want to say, which of course happens just through free association and writing, but it's, there's a difference that I find myself unable to describe about how to, to key into and tap the um, energies of the ambient, the next to, the neighborly. I like, and Maggie, what is behind, I've been looking at this very brightly colored art behind you. What is that? It's actually kind of similar to some of your other things. Um, yeah, yeah I don't, um, both of these pieces I believe are um, friends of Harry's or previous students and Harry, my partner has a very good good habit of uh, acquiring work from from young people. So we have a lot the of- one at the, bottom, the one at the bottom reminds me, uh, first of certain of like drawings of Maria Lasnik. Yeah, yeah, part of her body. Her, yeah. her she moved to New York and started doing like body art. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, you guys. Uh, we have about ten more minutes. If anybody has any more questions, go ahead and put them in the uh, chat box. Here's a question for you. Uh, this says, uh, "I wonder." This is from Justin. I wonder if Maggie and Wayne could talk a little bit about freedom political and personal, and maybe it's fetishization, especially in our current circumstances. Good question. <laughs> Maggie, you'll forgive me if I, 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 I think that you should answer that. I don't that have anything to say about freedom. Um, political or personal, come on. No, no, I'm just that I'm finishing right now. So I actually have a lot to say about, that, about the matter. Um, so what's the question? The question is what, talk a little bit about freedom and the fetishization of it in our circumstances. Uh, I mean, I will say this, that, I, that actually Waynes uh, has a great line from an essay of his called Stein is Nice, which appears in Cleavage about Gertrude Stein. And he is talking about the proper noun in Actually, no, you're just talking about a word in Stein. I don't think it even has to be a proper noun, but you say it's like a train ticket that the word gets perforated by being clicked by like every station through which it passes. And I actually used that metaphor in my forthcoming uh, book about freedom because I don't, I, I'm very interested in words as language games and I'm very interested in the Wittgensteinian idea of a word being its meaning, being its use. I'm not interested in, I mean, if you research into freedom, you know, proclamations, which were like bombarded by every single day about freedom is this, freedom is that, freedom is this. They don't, they don't really interest me. I don't, I don't, I don't think like that. So I am really interested in uh, watching the way a word moves. And maybe it's what Wayne was just talking about, actually, in a weird way about the blurred boundaries of the described thing, you know, or looking at the surround, you know. So I, I'm very interested in the surround. In, in conversations about freedom, but I'm not interested in, I mean, to me, every proclamation about what freedom is or is not, um, they can be moving and they can be politically strategic, um, but uh, they don't, um, they don't, they don't move me in, 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 in the same way that getting a vista of a whole scene does, if that makes sense. I think about freedom, I would just, I think it's in an, an essay from my 1980s, maybe like Play-Doh Fun Factory Poetics or something like that, where I, I talk about um, 
or maybe it's in punctuation and figuring out I, I, a characteristic experience of mine is having sculpted in through an aesthetic methodology a zone of freedom for myself and then quickly considering it a new confinement and that's sort of like the the line about being creating the binary of 1993 and 2018 and then being terrorized by it that, that you know i like giving assignments and figuring out is filled with assignments but assignments provoke terror and a sense of um diminished freedom so i guess i um i'm very comforted by suddenly whimsically announced precincts of limited activity like in, a, in a, you know kind of you may only do limitations you may only do these three things for the next half an hour i i relax and then i can be more incendiary so i guess that I don't know what to say. I wanted to say I'm 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 um, char characteristically I send myself into situations as a writer or whatever situations of confinement and and liberty. But I also like Maggie and what you were saying. The the very notion of a thinker saying she's not interested in something that seems to me a really powerful move that I want to model. Like I'm not interested in proclamations about freedom or something like that that you said to just say to just have to, to be able to say that is something that I want more of. Right. Well, I'm like when I was younger, I read this interview with John Cage and I didn't mm -hmm. know who John Cage was. But I read the interview, I think I was actually in high school and an interview asked him what he regret what he regretted the most in his life. Mm -hmm. And he answered, forgive me, I don't find that an interesting question. And I just thought it was like, I don't know, that like die out of question, it like structured the next like 30 years of my life, you know, because he was very kind, you know, he said, forgive me. But also, what do you regret most? I mean, to John Cage, I mean, like, you know, give me a break, you know, <laughs> what a dumb question, you know, but he I was so kind about it. You know? I regret not meeting John Cage, but maybe I don't, I shouldn't regret it. Maybe it would right. have been irrelevant to meet John Cage. Yeah. Right. I, I, wish I, I wish I'd met him too. But I, don't I, I, I must say, I, and I've said this, I am glad I met John Ashbery. I am, I, you know, I will say that. I'm very glad I met him. Anybody else? Last calls? What do we got? Okay. Uh, well, wait, you've got something to say, Wayne? Go ahead. No, I just say one more question. Oh yeah, let's do one more question. Here's one. Is there a story behind the emergence of the title? I think on your new book, Wayne. Figure it out. Yeah, figure it out. The, you know, the way it scrolls down each letter. Oh, you mean the actual cover? Yeah. Oh, the yeah. actual cover is genius. That's, that's by Michael Salou, who does all the art. I think I'm getting, I'm saying his name right? He does all the art for Soft Skull. And part of the genius of this soft, of the, the Soft Skull ship is this consistent kind of design they have for all their books, which is both um, whimsical and stringent or minimalist, not really minimalist, but it's, it's like one idea, one idea done thoroughly and playfully. And I recognize a new me in the Soft Skull clothing. It's as if I used to require like all these like identity markers 
to make myself legible to others. And now it just seems, um, what, the title itself, figure it out, I suppose I like its bossiness. It's like, I don't consider that an interesting question. Or it's like, you figure it out. But I was also, since I am very committed to figure drawing, um, that you can figure out a lot by investigating the figure. This has been absolutely amazing. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, everybody is just saying thank you. And everybody is so grateful that you both did this, Maggie and Wayne. Thank you so much from Sydney, Australia, to Switzerland, and all over the United States. People are watching you in all sorts of uh, time zones. And we really appreciate your time, Wayne and Maggie. So you guys, wherever you are, start clapping wherever you are for these guys. Why not? And check us out. Yes, and check us out at Skylight. Yeah, you bet. Check us out at skylightbooks.com. If you're in Los Angeles, come on by, say hello. And everybody, be safe out there. We really appreciate you all coming. Thank you. One more time, you guys, on behalf of Maggie Nelson and Wayne Kostenbaum. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Wayne. Bye, Maggie. Bye. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.